You're listening to the Blue Box Podcast, and for the next 60 minutes, we're going to be talking about Doctor Who so that you don't have to. Hi, I'm JR. Hello, I'm Lee. Mark. And I'm Simon. And tonight we're going to do a bit of a retrospective on Matt Smith's era as the Doctor. We've got some emails and we've also got the results of our little Facebook survey of our listeners of the top 10 Matt Smith stories. So without further ado... Since we've got lots to talk about, I'm mm-hmm. going to jump right in and tell you that the two stories that came in at ninth tied. So I'll give you those both together. And OK, there'll be a bit of a surprise with one of these, but perhaps not with the other one. The two stories that between us and our listeners, we voted into ninth position of the, you know, entire Matt Smith canon are the Pandorica Opens and the Time of the Doctor. Mm. And seeing as you've not been on the programme for a while, Mark, I'm going to yes. put you on the spot for 60 seconds. Oh, thanks, yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I thought you'd like that. Uh, Mark, 60 seconds on being a daddy. Oh. <laughs> well, there's lots of sleepless nights, lots of dirty nappies, um, quite a bit of crying. Um, but, yeah, there's obviously rewards because otherwise no one would ever have children. But, yeah, my little boy is lovely. So, yeah, very... Very pleased to be a dad. Congratulations, uh, mate. Thank you very much. Yeah, I well think done. for most men, the reward actually comes about nine months before the baby's born, <laughs> and that's why we become fathers. Yeah. <laughs> we've um, we've chosen a, a name that has got slight connection to, to Doctor Who. Slight, Mark. Before you tell yeah. us what the name is, would you like to describe your understanding of the word slight? Uh... Well, is it a word that other people might use major instead of? Possibly. Possibly. Okay. It's Zygon, I, isn't it? No, it's uh, Padma Sambhavar. <laughs> and his middle name's Zygon Lee, so you're No, his middle there. name is Kroll. Oh, yes. <laughs> Go on then, Mark. Reveal all. He's called Tom. And his middle name is? Patrick. Oh, well, there's a shock, eh? Mm. Mark, would you just like to reveal to the listeners who your favourite Doctor <laughs> Who's are? Uh, Tom Baker and Patrick Troughton. Oh, well, there's a shock. Now, now just so that I completely understand, yes. was that entirely coincidence, partially coincidence, or did you actually name your baby after your two <laughs> favourite Doctors? Well, I like the name Tom, and... Yeah. Why do you think you like the name Tom? I don't know, I just like it. And then okay. my wife said, well, oh, you're picking that because of Doctor Who, are you? And she said, well, you might as well call him Patrick. And then she was like, oh, actually, I quite like Patrick. So we kind of chose that as the middle name. You've got a good lady there. I've got a very good lady. Yeah. And a lovely little boy. Yeah. Well, good. So have you have you struck a deal so that if you have a girl, uh, the girl will be named <laughs> after fam- famous female authors no 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 no. the girl must be called lala zoe (laughs) no hang on i've got that wrong haven't i lala (laughs) wendy (laughs) what about leela lala 
Yeah, that's got a ring to it. <laughs> no, you could have one from the second Doctor, and you can't have Victoria. No, that's true. No, that would be Jamie. Wrong. <laughs> For a girl. Okay, okay, <laughs> we'd better move on because this yeah, is. Yes, so this is all a bit self-indulgent, isn't it? Yeah, this is all a bit Doctor Spock rather than Doctor Who. <laughs> um, we have an email from Richard Hogarth who says, "Hey guys, loving the podcast. I absolutely loved Time of the Doctor. It had action, comedy, and real heart, which made for compelling viewing." I loved all of the loose ends being tied up, and I have to say, whilst not being Moffat's biggest supporter, after the episode I found myself realising the storyteller was way ahead of me, and finally catching up with him, I have to say what a thrill the Eleventh's journey has been. I saw a lot of comments hating on Capaldi after the episode had finished. He was on screen for 30 seconds. I couldn't believe it. For my two cents... With what he had, he came across as a strong character. Whilst his Doctor may change, I eagerly await to see his debut and what this fine actor can do with the part. Another thing that annoyed was people's reaction to the sneezing regeneration. I said, well, this is his new cycle. The energy streaming from him was the new cycle kicking in then. When it was his time, it was a knee-jerk because of the new cycle starting. Amy coming back was a beautiful moment that was the icing on the cake. I have to agree with JR about Jamie Payne as the wrong choice of director. Whilst the character moments were beautiful, when it came to the special effects and bombastic moments, he didn't quite pull them off. While not ruining my enjoyment of the episode, it didn't have the impact, say, of Nick Hurren's or Saul Metstein's directing of previous episodes. And my final point is, I'm surprised you guys haven't commented on this, but this is really the first trilogy of Doctor Who since JNT's era, and my god, what a trilogy that not only celebrated the last 50 years, but has pushed it forward and resolved a lot of questions as fans have had. All in all, 2013 was match year, and I have to say, boy, did he get a great send-off, and he will be missed, as along with Pat Troughton, they are my favourite Doctors. Yeah, yeah. You know, when he actually sent that email, I did question whether it was actually a trilogy or whether... Because, you know, a lot of people have been thinking of it as a trilogy because it's the Of the Doctor trilogy. Name, time, day of the Doctor. But actually, thinking back to it, it is a bit of a trilogy because all three of those stories address stuff from the past in order to somehow reinvent it for the future. All three of those stories. It's kind of a three and a squidge, though, with Night of the Doctor, isn't it? Well, that doesn't do any of those things, and it's only a mini-episode, so we're not counting it, Simon. <laughs> well, I suppose, in a way, Night of the Doctor does address something from the past, i.e. the gap between McGann and Eccleston, mm, yeah. and reinvents it from the future, but that's not really what I was saying. What I'm saying is all three of those stories take something from the past of Doctor Who, and really turn it around in the blender until it comes out at the other end being something distinct that the future of the show can address. That's Lee falling off his chair. <laughs> right, okay. Just, th- what JR said was so amazing. <laughs> and truthful and honest and from the gut. God, it just made me fall off a chair. No, I agree with you, actually. I think it, it does feel like a trilogy. Um... It's probably because they've all got the Doctor in the title, and I hope we don't get any more Doctor titles anymore for a very long time. But, uh, no, you're right. It, they feel very close in tone as well, I think, um, all the way through. But, th- but who were the directors of each of those? Were they all different directors? 
I think they were. Yeah, I thought so. <laughs> Saul Metstein, <laughs> Nick Curran, and Jamie Payne. Right. Yes. Yeah, uh, unless I'm mistaken, I think I'm right on that. I think Saul is definitely my favourite director. Actually, of Matt. Not only because you've met him. No, actually, no. Before we met him, we were going on about how wonderful we liked his episodes. And then we got to meet him and interview him. And it was like, oh, this is the guy. (laughs) Um, Well, yes, of course. And he's a great bloke as well. Of course. And he's gone on to bigger and better things. Better? You sure? Well, okay. Bigger and better (laughs) paying things. Yeah, yeah. And the story that came in eighth... In our poll for the top 10 Matt Smith stories was Vincent and the Doctor. Hmm. Which leads us nicely into, I suppose, the first part of our discussion, which would be Series 5. And Matt Smith's first 12 months as the Doctor, I suppose. Now, uh, Matt Smith, a lot of people were a little bit worried about whether somebody, not just so young but also so unknown, I guess, in a way. I mean, he had done stuff, mm. but a lot of people hadn't seen him. Well, this is very partic- relevant to Richard's email, isn't it? Because <clears throat> he's mentioned people kicking off about Capaldi, which I must admit I hadn't seen, but... And people uh, kicked off about Matt Smith. Exactly, that's what I mean. So there were all these people who were like, oh, God, this is not going to work. And then, obviously, with that first series, I think the majority of the naysayers were silenced. Well, in fact, five Literally. minutes into the very first episode. Mm-hmm. All it took was that first scene in the garden with yeah. little Amelia, and I think everybody in the country was sold on Matt Smith, weren't they? What a beautiful performance in that opening scene. I'd seen him in Party Animals before he got the part, and that gave me a bit of an inkling of what he could do. Obviously, it's a totally different role, um, but I was really excited when I found out he was going to be in it. And uh, I, he was just spellbinding in that first episode, like you say. The relationship with the media. I think that's one of the things that strikes me about um, his interpretation of the Doctor. Um, he's he's got that sort of um, I don't know. He seems to appeal to kids. If you watch any of the the, he's like, child, the live he's performances, himself, and stuff, isn't he? Yeah. yeah, you see the proms and that sort of stuff, and you'll see him interacting with the kids, and he's just got that real rapport. Yeah, definitely. I mean, he he, he does come across as a, as a child. Uh, you know, like a, a really excited kid, like a Bambi mm. almost that's just been born is kind of stumbling about. And I really like that about him. And I was sold straight away. And I think when you get to the fish custard stuff, mm. you know, it's such a weird, random, knee-jerking um, kind of scene. Where you, you don't know what's going to happen. You really don't know what's going to happen next with him. Spitting but you totally brain, believe that he's his, this ancient soul as well, uh, don't absolutely. you? It's quite a clever Yeah, very, 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 very good straight away. All the way through, actually, the 11th hour, I think it was solid. Mm. Yeah, I think JR was surprised that um, the 11th hour is a, quite a popular episode with fans, mm. but I, I really like it. I think it stands up very well as a, a first episode because quite often they're a bit, well, not not the, representative of what you would expect. I, but I, I, enjoyed I really enjoyed it. it. But I enjoyed the first half, and it, but it didn't knock me for six to begin with. It was only mm. when I've... You know, I've, I've got to the end of the Matt Smith era, and I rewatched them again a few weeks back. Mm-hmm. That I just thought, oh my god, he's he's great from the offset, and I can see a progression of of character, um, and also with that acting performance. But he's pretty solid. He's pretty much the same character from 
the beginning to the end. And mm-hmm. it's it's just it's Matt Smith, isn't it? Just being generally bonkers, but it works. It does help that he's he comes across as a slightly eccentric chap when you see him being interviewed, and I think that sort of translates into his performance. Yeah, I think you <clears throat> you're kind of touching on the fact that he has the likability factor. Mm. Um, you immediately warm to him, even in interviews and what have you. Um, I think the main worry with his with his age was that is he going to treat it like just another job, or is he going to throw himself into it? And lucky for us, he absolutely. You know, um, we we just come out of the tenant years where we had someone who we knew was an ambassador from the show because he mm-hmm. loved it from the off. And the worry with Matt Smith, he'd come com- completely fresh to it, did a bit of homework during the summer before he started filming or what have you. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, and as it was, he absolutely hit the ground running. Um, and the tone of some of those scenes, as you say, the the, the kitchen scene with the fish fingers and cut, he, there's so many different flavours being shown there and he hits the right tone every time um, and I think that's probably why that episode is so is so popular because it, it's just so solid um, and, and, it, and it doesn't feel like he's picking up speed, it just feels like he's kind of nab, you know, he's he's got that part from the off. He must be quite a joy to work with for directors because when you listen to interviews with people that he's worked with it sounds as though he's quite happy to just rattle off maybe half a dozen different versions of one particular scene and the director can just sit down and, and pick out the performance that he wants for that particular part of the, the programme. I'm, I'm not entirely sure that's true. I can't remember what, when we were talking to Saul um, about his experience with Matt. I think he said that Matt had it kind of in his head mm-hmm. what to do, but he would come out and he wouldn't necessarily say all the words. He would say, now I go over here and I do a marvellous thing here and then I do this and I push my arms up in the air and go, way. And he does it, he kind of walks around and acts that instead of actually acting the words. And then the director kind of works around him a bit. Um, but yeah, yeah, maybe, I don't know, maybe there's different styles throughout, but uh, maybe he'd got it by three years. Well, you probably, they probably do it according to the scene. It, it, there's probably a bit of both going on, I would have thought. I can imagine him being quite um, random at times. There's probably some really odd takes somewhere on the cutting room floor. Shame. We should <laughs> we should definitely get the opportunity to see those. Well, I hope so. Yeah, I hope they exist. I don't think The Eleventh Hour was the strongest story, though. That's why it doesn't quite work for me. It's a brilliant performance and a very engaging performance, and I think that's why people like it so much, because of the performance. But the story itself is not, for me, the strongest. And although it's obviously deliberate that Stephen Moffat's gone for a sort of hybrid between the Russell T. Davis way of doing things and what would become the Stephen Moffat way of doing things, I don't think that hybrid sits too well with the rest of Moffat's era. And I think the same can be said for a lot of Series 5. And I know you're all going to hate me for saying this, but of the three series... It is the most inconsistent, both in terms of its themes JR, and its you're right. tone. Well, but it is true. It's you no, know, not right got... what you're saying. You're right that we all hate you for saying it. Well, but it's but it is true. If you look at things like The Hungry Earth and Vincent and the Doctor, they're mm. very much throwbacks to oh, absolutely. I mean, to Hungry the Earth Russell T. Davis. Pretty much a yeah. complete remake of the original Silurian story, isn't it? No, no, throwbacks to the Russell T. Davis way of doing the oh, show. Okay, yeah, all right. I see what you mean. The, the so, tone. Vincent and the Doctor and Hungry Earth both feel very much like uh, Russell T. To me, feel very much mm. like Russell T. Davis. I love stories. Vincent and the Doctor. I think it's a great episode. 
Uh, yeah, far but be then it, sorry to say, far be it for me to relate it to music, but it is like the first album, isn't it? It's it's. I think no, it's people very like much it not it's, like a first album. Well, no, I think well for Stephen Moffat and Matt Smith, it is. It is their first album. Yes, okay, they. But your analogy doesn't work because they've taken the show over, and the point I'm making <laughs> is that they've taken over somebody else's show. And they've made a hybrid between uh, well, two different shows. You could argue the point that they're a new rock band and there's rock bands that have gone before and they're putting their own spin on it. No, so. if you're going to use that analogy, it's <laughs> like the first solo album from somebody who used to be in a band okay. and the album still sounds a bit like the band used to and it doesn't sound as distinct as the solo artist's second solo ah, album is going to. But there are still to. moments of brilliance where they're trying something different. Uh, what it's like to me, Simon, I feel, <laughs> it's a collection of singles that have, uh, that have, you know, been like hits and not hits, but all mm. put on one album. So they've all got slightly different tones and feels. Yeah, I think that's JR's major criticism, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, I think from yeah, when we've chatted before is that because he's yeah. such a big Series 6 fan and the, one of the things that he loves about it is that you've got that sort of consistency yeah. running yeah, through yeah. it. Exactly. But series 6 is a prog rock album. <laughs> <laughs> I, no, I, oh, no, I adore Series I, 5. Yeah. Well, we'll get to Series 6, but the the distinction I'd make is that Series 6 has got a lot of variety in terms of, you know, the locations and the stories being told, mm -hmm. but a lot of consistency in terms of tones and themes. Yeah. And Series 5 doesn't... To me, a little bit all over the place. From, yeah, apart from the fact that the cracks turn up in pretty much every episode, and even Matt Smith's performance varies quite a bit in the first half of that season. I don't think it really settles down, in fact, until The Lodger and the two-part finale. I don't think you really get to see Matt Smith's Doctor the way Matt Smith's Doctor is going to be. I don't know. Get I think Time of Angels, um, and a bit, bear in mind, that's his first crack at it as well. I think that is pretty solid. I think that's... I'm not saying it's not solid. I'm just saying it's not the Doctor as the Doctor will be. I don't know. I might argue that. Well, maybe, perhaps maybe that one is more so because it was written by Stephen Moffat and mm. maybe he had a better idea and the rest of the writers in Series 5 yeah. are still a little unsure. And so it's only in the Moffat and, funnily enough, in the Gareth Roberts because Gareth Roberts is obviously very close with Stephen Moffat mm -hmm. and obviously got what Stephen Moffat was after, perhaps better than some of those other writers because those other writers the ones that do come back all get it so mm. much better when they return yeah i think for you know for my money but i mean series five you will love it right yeah i love it i think it's yeah. possibly yeah. my favorite series of of the the moffat years mm. <laughs> oh <laughs> controversial I'm, well i'm i'm mixed about it i am mixed about it i keep rewatching that series thinking i'm gonna have more than that should be there like the hungry earth uh, for instance I, I watched that again and thought oh it's a lot of silence i haven't seen those for a while i'm sure i'm sure that was a good one and rewatched it and thought yeah okay that first episode is pretty good and all right it's a bit long it's not much going on so it was it was all right it was okay but i didn't it didn't knock me for six vincent the doctor was amazing emotionally yeah. amazing um and quite beautifully acted by all actually mm. um but I, I don't know. I don't know. I think Karen Gillan, unfortunately, is, is kind of put a bit of a. That was the only thing that I didn't like about the eleventh hour was Karen Gillan's first kind of real chat with him walking up that that pathway. 
Um, she it was almost like they'd already been best friends or been good acting buddies and she was talking to him like she already knew him and she was mm. acting in inverted commas that'll come up quite a few times on this one um, and not really necessarily naturally acting and it just felt a bit forced and I, I cringed on in that scene I thought oh no she's going to be like this um, so I wasn't completely knocked out by series 6 but that's series probably, 5 sorry series, series 5 but that's just probably because of maybe Carrie Gillan and a few little bits. And I think she's of like that throughout the whole series. Bar there's a lot of acting eight. in inverted commas, and there's a lot of overacting and yeah. shouting and overreacting. Yeah. And she really calms down in series six, and I think that's another reason why I much prefer series get, six. Yeah, it does get better. It does get better. But in that first series, oh my god, in the lodger, you know, she's barely in that because it's mm. like an Amy <laughs> Light episode. But the few scenes she is in in the TARDIS, the overacting going on there is appalling. You didn't need that. You could have cut all of her scenes out. It still would have been a good episode. Yeah, it would have been a better episode, actually, because <laughs> it wouldn't have had the overacting. I love The Lodger. That's way up on my, my list of Matt Smith stories. I think it's great, but I prefer Closing Time purely because of the fact that it's not got Amy overacting all over the shop. <laughs> and also, I like what they do with the Cybermen in Closing Time. To me, The Lodger... Even though the ending is kind of explained by the events at the start of series six, to me it feels like an incomplete story. It's a bit like my criticism of The Empire Strikes Back. I don't especially like Empire Strikes Back because although it has a glorious first hour... I've said this before. I've said this before on this podcast. But I'm not especially a fan of The Empire Strikes Back because although it has a... you know, an incredibly strong first hour. It's got a not particularly song, strong second hour. And where it really needs to pull it out of the hat by having a really strong ending to make up for the fact that it kind of dips there in the middle and stays dipped, it doesn't. It just kind of tails off and says, right, you wait till the next film and you'll get your ending there. You but know, that's, The Lodger that's feels like, like a... <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. I, but... The Lodger, what sells it to me is that chemistry between Matt Smith and James Corden. And also, I mean, it, you were comparing it with Closing Time. I think a lot of what sells it to me is that relationship between James Corden's character and the, I forget yeah. the character's name now, the woman who ends up being his girlfriend, stroke mm. wife. Daisy. Yeah. But that that's two acting buddies. Right, mm-hmm. who naturally are acting naturally together, and it works. Yeah, you know the thing with Karen is it's almost like, oh, you know, I've got this great gig, and I'm and I'm in now, and I'm and I'm going to just do this thing, and this is this was my audition piece probably, and I'm going to just impress the socks of everybody, and it was just like you say, overacting. It was it was gauging it wrong. The bit about the psychologists. Oh, I've had four. I kept biting them or whatever. It's very Moffat lines, isn't it? It's like. Um, kind of um, not what's yeah. not stilted, but kind of like doom, doom, doom. it's like almost stabs. Well, I tell like you, com- what, there com- isn't. comedy stabs, bang, bang, bang. But her time yes. is off completely. Whereas his is perfect, Matt Smith. All the way but through. there's no subtlety in her performance no. of the kind that you need to persuade you that she's a real person. Mm, exactly, exactly. So, I can, can I just say about li- the little girl, Caitlin? I think her name is. Isn't it? Yeah, um, she's his cousin. Wow, she was fantastic, and she'd never done any acting before. And I think I know this has been said years and years now, but she really was exceptional, and I absolutely love her acting. And I just wanted Matt Smith to be able to, at some point, go back and take her for a little ride. But obviously, you can't mm. do that because it would muck up the entire series. But uh, how great would she have been in the TARDIS for a couple of episodes? 
Oh, indeed. You know, though, uh, <laughs> moving on, kids, because... I was going to say, just very quickly, better than the kids that are in Nightmare and Silver. <laughs> yeah, we don't talk about them. No, they, <laughs> don't, they don't exist anymore. Well, she was a couple of years older by then, so maybe they could have just recast her in a different part. Yeah, it's true. <sighs> anyway, I was going to say, <laughs> because we can't dwell on things too much, otherwise we'll be here all night. Um, where Series 5 really pulled together for me was in the final two-parter, mm-hmm. where all of a sudden, it was almost like the 11th hour was Stephen Moffat deliberately riffing on an Russell T. Davis kind of a story. And then the Time of Angels, apart from the problems that we all know I have with it because of the some of the story problems in there, that's like Stephen Moffat saying, okay, I can do something else with Doctor Who, and basically that's him making his... It has the 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 quality and the feel of something like Alien, for instance. Mm-hmm. It's like Doctor Who as a proper proper sort of sci-fi cinema film. What, you, what you're saying is that the, the first episode is him trying to reassure people that it's actually the same programme and trying to ease you into it without being too dramatically different. And then and you then, come to this and it's starting to show his own stamp on it. No, 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 entirely not. If you'd let me finish, Mark, you'd have found out why. <laughs> Go on. No, then. okay, to, to run with your explanation there, yes, 11th Hour is Moffat being reassuring to people who've been watching for the last five years and to not necessarily fans, so don't necessarily know that Doctor Who can change and still be the same. So yes, that's him saying Doctor Who can change and still be the same. Time of Angels is him, to my mind, Time of Angels is Stephen Moffat saying, not quite sure what I want my Doctor Who to be, so instead, what I'll do is I'll write a really nice feature film and stick it in Doctor Who, and everybody will be blown away by what a great feature film of Doctor Who it is, but it's still not quite sure where it's going to be. I mean, there's a lot of stuff in that episode. A lot of the feel of that episode doesn't really feel very Stephen Moffat Doctor Who, given how the Stephen... This whole dark fairy tale thing Hmm. does eventually kick in. And to my mind, Series 6 and Series 7, he gets that a lot better. But in Time of Angels, it's like, okay, we'll put this crack in the forest. And that's kind really... of more hinted at rather than explicitly sort of well, laid out, it's, isn't it? There's so so much more of the rest of that episode is all like army and tech and stuff. It kind of the elements don't sit too well for me there. It's like he's thinking about what he wants his Doctor Who to be, but he's not quite sure. And that story is a case of him treading water and not quite getting there. And then you get to the big bang and the Pandorica opens. You've got a fast and furious start with all sorts of elements dovetailing in that you'd never have expected, given what you've had with Russell T. Davis for the last five years. You know, all these returning characters who, it transpires, are all part of this final story. Then you've got... And I mean, I could list things, but, you know, to give three examples, Rory turning up out of the blue, and instead of it being a reunion scene, you've got the whole scene with the Doctor not working out until afterwards that hang on this guy died yeah you've got <laughs> river song is cleopatra and you've got a cyberman you know underneath stonehenge protecting some mystical prison all these things you've got stephen moffat all of a sudden realizing how he can do his doctor who he can take all these different elements 
and there is a glue that will hold them together and in the Pandorica opens he finds how to use that glue and all of a sudden it's working and to me Pandorica opens is where Stephen Moffat's Doctor Who really kicks in which is why to me series 5 will always be you know something that I can't quite come to terms with because it's not the Doctor Who that I like that Stephen Moffat makes Hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, I think you may be in the minority there, JR, unfortunately. I know, but I... Well, <laughs> as long as I can back up the things I say, I'm quite happy saying them. I can completely I see I'm your point. With it. I, I enjoy it. Um, it is patchy, it is up and down, um, but there's, there's, there's things to like in there, certainly. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And in fact, looking back on it now, I think it's a lot more likeable than I found it at the time, because I can appreciate the sort of ideas coming to the surface. I just don't think they're at the surface. It's a, sh- it's a shame. I mean, I don't know. What was his kind of idea behind Rory dying every time? Was it a bit of a joke to kind of... Pl- was it like, you know, uh, oh, in the past, Doctor Who never had companions that died. Let's kill this one off 18 times. It's a bit of a laugh and we'll joke about it. Well, it's only it, like three it, times. Is it? Is it well, only three times? But you, you kind of think, well, that's making a mockery of the actual process of death. It's, it's like, you know... you. Take it seriously. When when some girl's dying, uh, that girl in the good man goes to war, or whatever she's she's dying. Lorna Bucket. That's it, Miss Bucket. Um, he's really sad about that, and you dwell on it, and it's sad, and it's sad. With Rory, it's like sad for about three seconds, and then he's alive again, and he's dead again, and he's sad for about three seconds. Well, no, because if you <laughs> look at it, the first time he dies, he properly dies. Yes, and that was a shock to everybody. We all kind of went, oh. Uh, when he and um, when he comes back, it's. The Auton Rory. And then when the universe is rebooted, Rory's still alive because he's the Rory from the other universe. So the version of Rory that died in uh, Cold Blood mm. is dead. That Rory is not resurrected. It's only the idea of Rory that's resurrected. And I think mm. what happens after that is that you've got that scene in... I think the next time it happens is Curse of the Black Spot, isn't it? Which is the scene where they think Rory's dead and they manage to resuscitate him, right? Mm. Which, before before anybody butts in, you look at probably any period of Doctor Who, but mm. say something like, oh, I can't think specifically, something like maybe The Mask of Mandragora, 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 oh, that's <laughs> bloody... That's, that's the bloody, Target books. No, that's bloody Reverend... Captain Hollow Poro <laughs> did that last week and has made me do that. Uh, but hey, you Rev. look at, uh, I'm sure it, it was either in that story or one very close to there. You've got Sarah Jane dies, but she's not mm. dead. The Doctor manages to resuscitate her. Mm. And then in Terror of the Zygons, they all die, and yeah. but they're not dead. They manage to, it's only become okay. a thing because of social media that all of a sudden says, well, hang on, Rory died last year. Mm. And look, in this story, he's died again. Except he hasn't. It's just a moment of peril where you think he's dead and they manage to resuscitate him. Mm. But then it becomes a thing. Rory dies. And of course in The Doctor's Wife, and The Doctor's Wife and Curse of the Black Spot were supposed to be at opposite ends of that series. But of course, because they moved the episodes around, all of a sudden The Doctor's Wife and The Curse of the Black Spot are right next to each other. And in The Doctor's Wife, you've got the scene where Amy and Rory are trapped inside the TARDIS and in order to show that they are trapped inside the TARDIS and that time's moving at a different speed for them you get to the point where they're 
old and they die. Mm. And the first one you see die has to be Rory because you have to see it through Amy's eyes because Amy, Amy is the primary companion. So again, it has to be Rory there. And just the coincidence of having those two stories next to each other all of a sudden cement the idea in the social media's, the social networking universe's mind that Rory is the Doctor Who version of Kenny. And so after that point, <laughs> but but it's because of that, and I think after that point, Stephen Moffat then makes it a conscious thing, whereas up to that point, I think it was an unconscious thing. So I think Stephen Moffat made a joke of it after that. Mm. Oh, yes, Rory's the one who dies and comes back. But I don't think that would have happened again if mm. those two stories hadn't been put next to each other and it became so patently obvious. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm. Did you say the Pandora Corona was up there number nine? Has been one of the most. Mm. Why? I wonder why. What? I'm I'm confused as to why that one would be so high on the list. It seems Pandora like Corona. Yeah, it seemed like a bit of a a mishmash and a bit of a dimensions in time with some um, oh, added what? strawberries and cream. And when I said Pandora Corona, <laughs> I do mean both episodes, Lee. I do. Yeah, I mean both episodes. There's some great ideas, brilliant concepts, fantastic comic book that would make. But it felt so hodgepodgy, and the idea of the Big Bang being restarted is almost too much for any science fiction person to even, you know, we we can put our, we can believe so much, <laughs> you know. In the oh, but if you world. listen to any podcasts or read any forums no, or read any reviews, he doesn't listen to our podcast, let alone anyone else. Know <laughs> that those two episodes are regarded by what I would say is probably. The majority, by which I mean the largest minority, as mm. the best finale in the seven series of Doctor Who. No. Yeah, but so. I'm. You're asking me. You're asking me why has it been voted yeah. so high? Okay. And yeah. I'm saying, well, people love it, right. and that's why they've voted it high. I think Mark liked it, didn't you, Mark? I did. <laughs> I thought it was amazing. All right, go on then. Convince me. I, well, well, I, I, didn't I, I convince you five minutes ago when I was talking about it? <laughs> Not really. <laughs> um. I think if you think about it on from in basic terms, you've got all the different alien species all getting together because they've all realised they all have a common foe. And that's been a moment that's been waiting to happen. And but they, what a twist. Yes. Mm. yes. When yeah. they stick him in the prison. Yeah. And what a cliffhanger as well to leave it. Oh, yeah. And all this a, time a, the Doctor's been... And the... And there's some amazing, amazing character beats as well. Like when the Doctor stands on the rock and says to the aliens, mm -hmm. okay... You know, for the past 46 years, you've been getting defeated by me time after time after time. What are you going to do about it now? Mm. And the aliens just sit there and laugh at him because that's exactly what they want him to do. Mm. Because then he'll go down into the underhenge and they'll stick him in the prison. And um, I think it needs brownie points purely for making Cybermen scary again. Yeah. And... Uh, on top of all that, like I was saying about Stephen Moffat's Doctor Who coming together, you couldn't imagine the denouement, the resolution for the Time of Angels, which, let's face it, most of the resolution for that was a, it was a, a transmat and a reverse the polarity switch. It, it was two deus ex machinas in one. Mm. And then you get to the Pandorica opens and the Big Bang. Here's this prison where in order to make the occupant's misery infinite, 
the prison itself is built to keep you alive. Oh, Amy's dead. What do we do with her? Stick her in a prison. <laughs> it's like... It's banana pants it's, crazy. It's banana pants crazy, and it's subtle, and it's extremely clever. And there are so it's many subtle beats. like a hammer. No, it's not subtle like a hammer. It's <laughs> subtle in that he has... Come on, Lee, you cynical old sod. Did you not... When He's made that prison an intrinsic part of the story. Mm. And the fact that it is built to keep the occupant mm. alive is absolutely mm. central to what that prison needs to do, to what that prison is absolutely there for. And so that the prison becomes the resolution to the death of Amy should be really, really obvious. And yet, of course, it's not. It's a complete yeah. shock. Mm. And there are so many moments, especially in that second episode. The first episode, Lee. the Lee, surprise sorry. when they reveal it's a prison itself is a big enough mm. twist. Mm. But then the second episode is absolutely ram-jam full of twists, and they all make completely logical sense. Lee, it's did you brilliant. not squee in the first... Uh, in the start of the second episode, when the Pandorica opens up and little Amelia sees Amy inside the Pandorica. That was great. Did you not think, wow, that's amazing? Oh, yeah, no. Like I said, there were some great part, little bits in it that I just went, oh, that's brilliant. And the, and the prison is one of them. I thought it was great. I, d- I just had a problem with it, the, 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 the pace, the tone, the feel, the fact that everything was thrown at... I think it was the trifle thing again. We throw it against the wall, see what sticks. Uh, no, but at the, and at the end, it's all this kind of wishing the Doctor to come alive and... Oh, I really because like River Song in the story tale. as well. This is before it gets to River Overload for me. I think it's just <laughs> pretty much bang on for me. That's a okay. really good River Song story. Uh, Doctor Who fans, how we differ. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, let's uh, move on and tell you that the story that came in seventh in our top ten Matt Smith stories was The Time of Angels. Hmm. Since we've just been talking about it, that's quite apt, I guess. Um, We got an email, a very long email, so I'll try and whip through it, from Matt Barber. Hello, Matt. He says, Hello, various blue box podcasters led by JR. Here's my reaction to your Time of the Doctor review. I've had the strange experience of disagreeing with almost everything you said in the podcast, yet at the same time rather enjoying the episode. My response to it is, therefore, attempt to try and work out how this can be. So here it goes. First point. I agree that recent episodes improve with the second viewing. I found this to be the case with Time of the Doctor, and while I was nonplussed on first viewing, I found on the second viewing that I enjoyed it. It's not my favourite story, but then I've never been a fan of the Christmas specials, and I felt that it suffered being so close in time to the almost wholly successful day of the Doctor. But whilst I agree that these stories improve with multiple viewings and and that this is reflective of their sophistication, I do wonder whether this is actually a good thing. Many equally sophisticated television series are also instantly likeable. Possibly Moffat is making television for the DVD catch-up generation, but I think a balance could be found even in his more complex episodes. And I will butt in just to respond to that. I think a reason why Doctor Who fans find Doctor Who improves with the second viewing is because on the first viewing they're just a bit too close to it, whereas a general viewer will just sit there and won't spend the entire time saying, oh, this story doesn't make sense, and will just allow it to be enjoyed. Anyway, shall I go on with the email then? Yeah, go on. 
Okay, second point. I'm not convinced that Moffat has had a master plan to the degree that you suggest. There seems to be two poles of thought. One that Moffat is making up entirely as he goes along, a la Lost and bits of the X-Files, and the other that suggests that Moffat has had it all mapped out from the beginning. Surely the most likely answer, and the one that I think makes Moffat even cleverer, is that his approach has been somewhere in between. He yeah. writes spontaneously, but leaves gaps in the narrative that can accommodate any future development or twists that may occur to him in the future. I just can't believe that Moffat knew that Amy's crack, as another of your correspondents <laughs> referred to it, concealed Time Lords from the beginning. And, you know, I agree, and I yeah. think... I do think that's what we actually said, though. He's pretty much summed up everything that I thought about it, because I was... My reaction was meh when I watched it the first time round. I agree, it does... It is better second time round. But, yeah, I think my problem was it felt a bit kind of cobbled together. Anyway, I'm interrupting Matt's... It felt completely the opposite of cobbled together to me. It felt to me like a story you'd always wanted to tell. That the had tone a few... seemed all over the place. Do you really? No. I think that's more to do with the director. I, I just found myself really not caring about Clara's family at <clears throat> all. I was just completely well, I think you were supposed by to. They um... were only in like one scene at the start and then another catch-up scene in the middle. They mm. weren't a part of the story. You know, you weren't supposed to care about it. Don't get me wrong, there's some lovely bits in there, but... You've yeah. got her uh, pretty unlikable stepmom there, haven't you, for a start? Mm. That's not going to mm. help matters, is it? Yeah. But um, And the grand from Vengeance we... on Varos. <laughs> yes. Um, and Benidorm. Um, can I, just before we go about the emails, also make the point that when I say about, oh, it's okay because when you watch it on the second viewing, it's always better, that... I'm. I'm not saying that's a get-out clause. I'm not saying... I'm, I'm actually saying that for the viewer. Try and watch it again and then you can enjoy it. That's all I'm saying. I'm not saying, oh, these are episodes that need to be watched twice, you know, and that's and that's why you don't enjoy them the first time. I'm not saying it's a get-out clause at all. I just... And I'm not... And I don't actually think it's a plus point for the episodes. But, I mean, if what JR says is true and it's all to do with the fact we are Dot 2 fans and we analyse these things to the nth degree when we first watch them and then the second time we relax and watch them normally... Then I mean I hope that's true. I hope that's true because um, let's face it, you know, in Doctor Who's past, when you literally couldn't watch an episode twice, it's not really a good thing, is it? I think actually, when we watch a story the second time as Doctor Who fans, we're seeing it the way a, for want of a better expression, <laughs> casual viewer watches it the first time. Hmm. I thought you were going to say normal for a minute. <clears throat> anyway, back to Matt Barber. Third point related to the second. Moffat's stories are clearly polarising. There seem to be viewers who obstinately refuse to enjoy any Moffat-era story regardless of their popularity or qualities, and those who would defend them to the death regardless of their deficiencies. I think I fall between the two. I would say that this polarisation comes across in your podcast. It's telling that it took the form of a defence rather than a review, and as such actually made me turn against the story slightly despite my enjoyment of it. <laughs> Actually, I wish I'd never said at the start of that podcast that it was going to be a review of the reviews <clears throat> because it turned out not to be a review of the reviews. And yet, because I'd said that at the start, I think Matt and probably other people as well took it as a review of the reviews. Mm -hmm. Anyway, Matt, final point, sigh of relief. 
Off the subject of the podcast and regarding your criticism of Sherlock as moving away from the whodunit form, it should be noted that Conan Doyle's original stories were very rarely whodunits. They're better labelled as detective thrillers, but often a lead through a range of different genres. Most of the time, in the original stories, the criminal was known, and the point of the story was the process of detection. If anything, the last episode of Sherlock moved closer to the whodunit form than in the original story. It also had a nod towards the G.K. Chesterton story, The Invisible Man, in which, as J.R. might appreciate, a postman was revealed to be a murderer. (laughs) And I have to say, I don't know Conan Doyle anything like closely enough, so I've got to take Matt's word for that. And so, yes. And at this point, I tell Lee to put his headphones back on because he didn't want to hear anything that happened in that last Sherlock episode. <laughs> uh, well, that was actually about the first Sherlock episode. How was it? He's not seen that yeah. either, have you? Oh, you've seen the first one. Oh, right. uh, I think anyway. Matt summed up everything I felt about that uh, Christmas special, um, but put it far more eloquently than I ever could. Mm-hmm. And it's Matt finishes up by saying... Apologies for the long email, a lot to get off my chest. I'm sure you can edit out anything boring or irrelevant. Hopefully, as you hinted in the podcast, Mark can recover from baby-making swiftly so he can pro- properly concentrate on enjoying Moffat stories in future. I do. Hey, I do. I've, I've as said... if we'd edit Matt, as if anything he'd say would be boring or irrelevant. No, absolutely not. Um, Just wrong. I did feel that, that that episode lost out because Mark wasn't there to balance it out. I did feel it was balanced too far one way. I, I was almost disappointed the fact we all, all three of us liked it because it 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 did feel like um, I came away from that and I think Lee said the same that we felt like we'd kind of it might come across that we'd sledgehammered the chap who gave us the email to kind of go through um, and that wasn't that certainly wasn't my intention anyway. Yeah, it, it did feel like we. Um, I mean, we we were big in the episode up simply because all three of us really loved it and it did need that balance. Um, but um, yeah, we we all know this that there were people that don't like it. That, that surprised me at the reactions when I eventually did get onto the internet and kind of trawl through the stuff. And I thought, blimey, people really do hate this episode, and I was incredibly surprised. I was, I just thought it was one of the best. I mean, there are people I know seen. online who I wouldn't put into the category of Moffat haters who were largely nonplussed by it, yeah. and a lot of people who really loved it as well. So. I don't think it's just this sea of people who just refuse to accept mm. the sort of Moffat era as a whole. I think that I just, I'm quite philosophical about it. I, I'll watch an episode. I may not like it, but I know that I'll probably really love the next one that comes along. I I think my, this last thing I'll say on it, my main, not so much problem, but the thing I find hard to understand when I hear some of the criticisms about it. Actually, I take on board a lot of what you said, Mark, and I can kind of see how that, I, I could perceive it as that, but I, maybe I just swallow a lot of it because I find it very easy to suspend my disbelief and just, just go with the flow. And I'm not saying you don't, I'm just saying it might be how, how it just comes across to you. Mm. Um, it, it's just that a lot of the criticisms, criticisms I was hearing, probably from the Mod, Moffat haters, were literally facts that they were saying that didn't hold any water. They were getting it wrong. Yeah, they were literally getting facts wrong about mm. the story. Um, and that, I suppose there's an injustice to it, and that, that is just like a rag to a ball to me, so, you know. <laughs> <laughs> okay, in this episode in which we are pushed for time because there is so much to get through, that was seven minutes on the fact that Mark wasn't here last week. <laughs> I think we should. I shall move us along, time. shall I? Yeah, but I think that it's important to make that. Point. Oh my God! And now you're going to carry on. <laughs> no, I'm not. Further. I'm just saying that we we 
we try and make a balanced argument. We don't try and say this is right, this is wrong. We'll hit straight down the middle. Um, yeah, but Time of the Doctor was brilliant. Mark's wrong. <laughs> the story that came sixth <laughs> in our listeners and hosts review uh, vote on the top ten polls. That's the word I was looking for. That's on top one. ten Matt Smith stories was The Lodger. Yay! And that leads us rather not very nicely into the subject of Series 6. Boo. Right. What? <laughs> <laughs> well, you all know my opinion on it. You hate uh, it. I think there's a lovely variety of stories, but there's also a lovely consistency of tone. And I think even the weaker episodes, because of the Black Spot and the Rebel Flesh, are elevated because they feel like a natural part of the series. As as bad as the curse of the crap script was, um, that it is, wasn't bad. It that, was a good that, episode. That was, that was the blemish, I think, of the of the series for me. But um, you did an interesting thing to me, Jr. <laughs> Pardon? Um, publicly, not privately. Uh, what? Ba- basically, this has what... got nothing to do with what Mark was up to nine months ago. <laughs> <laughs> God, I hope not. <laughs> If so, I can't Thank remember. God for that. Um, it was a strong cup of tea you gave me. At least I think it was tea. No, is that the, a euphemism? The um, series six, I couldn't, I couldn't deal with it. And series five was like, yeah, I really like it, really like it. And actually, you kind of completely swayed me the other way uh, with a, a brilliant argument of fifty uh, odd podcasts back or whatever. Um, and I thought, okay, we got box sets. I'm going to redo them both. And actually, I came out thinking, actually, yes, yeah, series six is a beautifully packaged little um bit of conundrum is a great bit of fun and uh, even though the wedding of river song isn't necessarily my favorite and let's kill hill is pretty good i just think the whole series worked well as a tone and it gelled well together and it was it was a great idea bonkers but really good fun and you also had room in there for the variety of going from Let's Kill Hitler one week to Night Terrors the next. Mm. I mean, when Mark says he likes the variety in Series 5, I say, look at those two episodes and tell me you don't have that variety in Series I, 6. I won't argue there's variety there. And I do I do enjoy Series 6. I probably sort of lay on a bit thick that I don't like it as much as Series 5. But my, and I bored everyone to death on this, my major gripe with it is the fact that it kind of becomes the river song program because it's it's that thread that's running through it which he wants to cover and i just find it gets a bit too much but i some find great stories in there but you I'm can gonna... take... sorry yeah you i just quickly say you can actually pluck out the river song song stories which is what my son did he said i watched hmm. them all in a row and they made sense to me dad i went oh yeah they did and actually you didn't need to watch closing time god complex and all the other bits could, no, that's you know. the brilliant thing about the last four years altogether, actually. You can watch all the Stephen Moffat episodes in order and you will get a complete story mm. and you don't miss anything by watching any of the other episodes. Or alternately, you can watch all those other episodes and as long as you ignore three seconds here or 20 seconds there of little plot stuff that they've just stuck in just to keep it ticking over, all those other episodes, every single one of them, is a little complete story of its own. Apart from The Lodger. Okay, fair enough. But all the rest of them are complete stories in their own right. So you have the absolute best of both worlds. You've got a four-year story told by a storyteller who, you know, given what Matt says, knows where the story's going, allows room for manoeuvre, but knows where that story's going, and tells that story over four years, 
But that only takes up 25% of the episodes, and the other 75% of the episodes are the standalone stories that Doctor Who fans seem to want. So, where's the problem? And Simon should like this. Here's a little analogy for you. Uh, Star Wars analogy. Series 5... Don't start him off again. Series 5 <laughs> is a bit like the first Star Wars film in that it appears to tell a whole story and come to a proper conclusion, but actually it doesn't. It leaves stuff hanging that won't be resolved until the third part of the trilogy, which will be Series 7, or actually, you know, the two uh, specials that come just after Series 7. But, unlike The Empire Strikes Back in the middle, which has a really nice, strong tone to it, but doesn't come to any kind of a conclusion, Series 6... It wraps up a bit of what goes on in Series 5 and, unbeknownst to the viewer, leaves stuff open to be resolved in Series 7 and the specials. But Series 6 is the only one of those three series that actually tells a complete story from start to finish between the first and last episode. Because it concentrates on River Song and because it concentrates on this, what we find out later as a breakaway group of the Silence being led by Madame Covarian, You've got a complete story in Series 6. The only one of those three series that actually tells a complete story that starts and finishes within the same series. Mm. Another reason why I find it the most successful of the three. Mm -hmm. I'm just looking at the list of stories here and it is... <laughs> it just is so strong, isn't it? It really is. Yeah. Um, and well, the strongest everything. episodes are yeah. the Moffat ones. And everything, and on top of everything else I've said, yes, some of the best episodes of Doctor Who of all time are in Series 6. Yeah, yeah. Well, for me, yeah, Doctor's Wife's in there. Um, I mean, I love The Impossible Astronaut, not so much the second episode, but... Um, and The Girl Who Waited. My God, what a classic. Yeah. An absolute classic. And the God complex. Mm. And okay, I know other people don't like these as much as I do, but Let's Kill Hitler and the Wedding of River Song are just insane. And I love a bit <laughs> of insane. They're like, to me, they're of a piece with dinosaurs on a spaceship. <laughs> yeah. They... Even though Series 6 as a whole isn't probably my favourite series, I think probably a good, at least four or five of my nominations in the poll were from Series 6. So that tells mm. you something about the quality. Mm. Yeah, exactly. I think Impossible Astronaut Day of the Moon were my favourites, tops for, for ages. And even though they had flaws, which I think were pointed out actually quite a lot when we were talking about it a while back, I just love the whole feel of those two episodes. They just were just so well told stories to me. Um, and I was so excited to see the Day of the Moon and it carrying on and the Doctor growing a beard and getting trapped just fantastic the whole thing and you're right it, it, it gets more and more bonkers when you get to a good man goes to war which i i probably think is uh maybe the third fourth weakest one for me uh, it's 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 a big big story to tell which didn't quite pull off and then you get to let's kill hitler and it's like what <laughs> what's this all about where's this going now i have no idea what's going to happen next it was a surprise every week um, you know, even the weak stories, Night Terrors and things, had great visuals, great ideas. They just weren't necessarily strong in the direction and, and the acting stakes. And, and we've not even mentioned the God Complex, which mm. is an absolute gem stuck yeah. in the middle of there that kind of gets forgotten yeah. because of all the big stories around it. Yeah, exactly. 
But what a... I mean, in any other series, the God Complex would be, you know, among the choices for the best story of the series. That took a second watch for me to, to realise it's yeah. genius, actually. It really did. Um, yeah. I'll tell you the one thing about Series 6 that I think sticks in people's craws the most, and I've talked about this before, so I'll just say it really briefly, is the fact that once Amy gives birth and the fact that the baby gets stolen away yeah. and they don't find the baby and it kind of gets brushed under the carpet a bit. Mm-hmm. But, you know, my explanation for that from a... You're not retconning, are you, JR? Because we know no, you don't I'm... like retconning. <clears throat> no, I'm not retconning, Mark. <laughs> I don't retcon. He's a wind-up Of course today. not. <laughs> well, this is not a retcon anyway, if you'd Go let on. me say what I was going to say. <laughs> yes, dear. Well, Amy spends her entire pregnancy asleep in a box, not realizing she's pregnant. Yeah, so she doesn't have no point. She doesn't have any connection with the child. No, she never even meets the child. She spends her entire pregnancy not knowing she's pregnant, and as soon as she gives birth, the child's taken away. And actually, when she does get to meet the child, it's a milk replica of the child. Exactly. So it's not even the child. So she never replica. She never gets to make any kind of a bond with it whatsoever. And of course, right from the get-go, we know that the child survives and grows up because we meet Mel's and we meet River Song. Mm. So while I'm not saying that that's necessarily an excuse for brushing that storyline under the carpet, given that Doctor Who is still ostensibly aimed at, you know, children and young adults, mm. you don't want it to get bogged down for half a series in something that's all about a baby. I think if so RTD had still been showrunner and that storyline was included, I think it might have panned out quite a bit differently. I think it, it would have all so. been about the, the sort of domestic... But I'm saying if you take that stuff about Amy into account, that's mm-hmm. the reason why you don't get bogged down in the baby storyline in the second half. And although, yes, I see that as a valid criticism, at the same time, I don't let it spoil my enjoyment of that series. Yeah, I mean, the fact is that if you've had a baby, no matter what, whether you gel with it or not, she went through some pain at some point delivering, or she knew she was pregnant, or it was a freaky experience. And, you know, in we know this is Doctor Who and it's bonkers, but in reality, any human would be pretty weirded out by that, and she just didn't seem to be, you know... Well, she's the, absolutely distraught at the end of at the end, uh, Good is. Man Goes to War. And then suddenly and then it just picks up... When they if, come back. Yeah. yeah. So that, but how much time elapses for Amy between those two episodes. Well, we don't know, do we? And we don't, we don't see that bit. But you're right, Mark. I think if RTD done it, then we would get an emotional response mm. which would make us all cry a bit and then it would move on. Uh, but uh, we didn't get that with Moffat. Maybe just doesn't want to dwell on that kind of icky stuff and just, yeah, I <laughs> just think... get on with telling a funny story. Yeah, probably that did happen. It just happened off screen. And yeah. maybe if it had happened on screen people would have found themselves more satisfied. Well, you see a little bit of possibly the after effects of that in the Pond Life shorts prior to season seven starting. Okay, yeah. I missed that one. You could check those out. It's interesting because if you think back to the RTD era, you'd see the Doctor and Rose going off having jollies all the time. They'd have adventures where they were having a right laugh and there weren't many of those for the Doctor and Amy, were there? Mm. You don't see any of that. I'm just looking through these, and it's all pretty intense all the way. You know, they're in. Apart from Curse of the Crap Script, they have a laugh there, don't they? Well, this is it, but uh, but that's considered a dip in the series, and yet that is the one kind of jolly episode, isn't it? Where they where they're literally having a laugh going on a pirate ship. You do get a sense 
uh, you do get a sense on several occasions that Amy is absolutely loving her travels. Though, mm. I mean, at the end of the Big Bang, when he says, "Right, it's time to say goodbye," and you assume as a viewer that he's mm. saying goodbye to them because yeah. they've just got married. But what he means is it's time for them to say goodbye to their guests because they're going off on an adventure. And Amy and Rory are absolutely delighted to still be travelling in the TARDIS. Mm-hmm. Anyway, shall we shall we move along? Yes. Yeah. The episode that was voted fifth in our top ten Matt Smith stories was Dinosaurs on a Spaceship. Mm. Should be higher. <laughs> Well, yeah, but when you see the top four, it's not necessarily a surprise either. Okay. Um, here's an email from The Great Intelligence. Hi, JR and the Blue Boxers. Really enjoyed your Matt Smith-themed podcast. Thanks. As much as that podcast had a Q&A feel, I thought I would throw you boys a question about the time of the Doctor and see if you can help. I have had an extraordinary reaction to this final Smith episode. I really disliked it on first viewing and went to bed quite depressed on Christmas night over it. But amazingly, the more I've watched it, it has grown and grown on me. It could be one of the best episodes since the show came back. There you go, Mark. Okay, my questions. All about the Time Lords and the crack. Right, you ready for these guys? Go on, then. (laughs) One, if the Time Lords would have come through the crack if they were assured the Doctor was there, why didn't they? They were mm-hmm. convinced enough to send him a present. Possible answer to risky. Well, at one point, he actually puts his hand into the crack to pull out that piece of disintegrated TARDIS, doesn't he? So, there you go. Maybe I'm being nitpicky. <clears throat> well, no, actually, and I think this is stated on screen, I'm pretty sure it is, the Time Lords don't need to know that the Doctor's on the other side of the crack. They need to know that it's the Doctor on the other side of the crack telling them that it's safe to come That's through. That's right. Because he's mm. the only person they trust. Yeah. They're waiting for the mm. code. So They're waiting for the code, yeah. which is his name. And he hasn't said his it's, name yet. And it's not just that he says his name. He says it's his name and tells them it's safe to come through. Hmm. So they don't just come through when they hear his name. They come through when they hear his name and that it's safe. But That's in the, the more thing. recent sort of law they've had this thing where he can sense other time lords you know the doctor's wife he senses those cubes being around and in the tenant years he can sense the masters there but he can't sense that they're in the crack when he puts his hand into the crack that's because they're in a pocket universe Hmm. Hmm. it's just a that would be like saying (laughs) that would be like saying i can't (laughs) smell the jam in this jar that's sealed there's rather a lot going on the other side of the crack isn't there there's a lot going on i mean it's lich it's less that they're just sitting on the other side of the crack it's more that it's a way into back into the universe for the time lords isn't it yeah i think people have kind of matt's email kind of uh alluded to this as well actually i think people are getting the wrong idea about this crack people are saying now oh the crack is something that has the time lords on the other side no the crack as was spelled out right from the very start and has been consistent throughout is a crack in space and time right so like any other for want of a better word wormhole what's at the other end of the wormhole depends upon where the wormhole goes and you know what it finds there so hence prisoner zero coming through prisoner zero wasn't coming from gallifrey 
No, he was just coming through from the other end of the wormhole through that particular crack. Each crack will have something different on the other side of it. And because it's a tear in the fabric of space and time, the way in which each crack kind of operates won't necessarily always be the same either because space and time's a pretty friggin' big thing to have a crack in. <laughs> you know, it's not going to always be exactly the same from one crack to another. I think that's going to be a tagline on a future Moffat <laughs> where they do those little mock-up posters. <laughs> so, space so and really time's is. a pretty freaking big... You're going a bit Douglas Adams there, JR. But you know what I'm saying? Do you get what yeah, I'm saying? I mean, People I are saying, know. oh, it's inconsistent because Gallifrey's on the other side of this being one. being a bit picky, but I just... Uh, the other thing that grated me slightly about Time of the Doctor, I know he wanted to tie up all the loose ends, and I think it's cool that he's done that, but it did feel a little bit like it was all just kind of... <laughs> I don't know. Did you listen to our podcast on it then, Mark? Yeah. He wasn't tying up the loose ends. He'd already tied up the loose ends, but Doctor Who fans, some of, being what they are, some of them, just had somehow managed to miss the explanations mm. so he wasn't tying so up loose ends like he was me. reiterating it. yeah <laughs> it's like <clears throat> you know another criticism i've recently read or heard was that you know there was so much crammed into that episode that there was too much going on no it was a really simple story it just had two or three scenes where stephen moffat was explaining to the doctor who fans who'd missed the point what the point was do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, mm. I seriously didn't find that one complex, I've got to say, which is unusual no. for me. <laughs> I mean, one podcast I listened to this morning said, oh, we could have had a really nice, simple story like the Caves of Androzani, and he goes and blows it on the time of the Doctor. I'm thinking, no, you know you're biting the hand that feeds you here. He's written you a beautifully simple story like the Caves of Androzani, where the Doctor sacrifices himself for something much smaller than all of time and space. He, he's not even sacrificed himself for the Time Lords. He sacrificed himself for the idea that Gallifrey can come back. I don't because there like still be other that I hated it, because I, I liked bits of it. I thought the Daleks being a bit more sneaky was very good. I thought the speech at the end was lovely. So I'm not, you know, don't put me down as a complete hater. But it just wasn't my favourite. <clears throat> well, I wasn't especially talking to you, Mark. <laughs> I just wanted to make it clear to the listener that I'm not a, okay. always a miserable. So anyway, <laughs> the Great Intelligence does have a second question, so we'd better get on to it. Um, he says... Go on then. Go on then. Okay. No, I just wanted to make... Oh, sorry. Now, can I just say that, um, Mark, was Amy in labour when the episode came on? Had she started? Well, we were, <clears throat> we were watching it, and um, she put up on social media or definitely takes after his dad because he's getting all excited when Doctor Who's on um, and we didn't really think any more of it and then in the very early hours of Boxing Day he decided it was time for him to make his appearance so uh, I wonder yeah, we whether you were watching that... it in the middle of uh, her oh, labour yeah, pains because that's the sort of thing I do you know <laughs> You guys do realise we're recording I'm watching here, Doctor don't you? I know I just, well, I just wondering if, he, if he's distracted <laughs> Come on, Simon, give me some credit, please. JR, move us on. Okay, we're an hour and ten minutes into this podcast, and we're only halfway through. So I am moving us along. The Great Intelligence, point two. More significantly, now that the Daleks have been destroyed and the situation is safe, why hasn't the Eleventh Doctor rushed back and shouted, Coast clear, now that it is? Possible answer, the cracker's now gone. He says, I don't ask 
I don't ask these to look for plot holes purely to check there wasn't something I missed. Thanks, boys, as ever. Great intelligence. So the second question. After the Daleks are destroyed, why doesn't the Doctor just tell the Time Lords it's safe to come through? The crack has gone. And the way I explained this, and it's not spelt out on screen, so, I mean, you could take this as, you know, just the way I saw it, but... When Amy, uh, Amy, when Clara talks into the crack that's inside the building, that closes. And to my mind, that closes so that the other one can open. And when the gift of the regenerations comes through and is given to the Doctor, that one closes too. Possibly because that amount of energy had travelled through the crack, that it had kind of used the crack up, as it were. So what happens then is that crack becomes closed... And because Gallifrey's not just, from what I was saying a minute ago, Gallifrey's not on the other side of a crack. Gallifrey's in another place. It's just that this crack had happened to open up between the two places, the one where the Doctor was and the one where Gallifrey is. So now the Doctor has to find Gallifrey by some other means. Maybe it will be another crack, or maybe it will be some other way to find an entrance to this pocket dimension, which won't necessarily be a crack. But my point is, I think that crack was just one crack, and in order to open above the Doctor in the sky to make the gift of the regenerations, it had to close the first crack. Mm-hmm. And then that gift coming through was such a powerful amount of energy to push through the crack that the crack closed naturally after it. I mean, anybody disagree so with that? That sounds so like a, a valid <clears throat> explanation. That's a brilliant okay. explanation. You the story sh- you, that should came- be a, you should be a writer. <laughs> The story that came, speaking of which, my copy of the Fanual came this morning <laughs> in the post. How was it? You're not hanging out for the colour version? Uh, well, I'm getting a colour version as well, but I got I'll a black and white one too. It's lovely. <laughs> Do you want to give it a quick plug? I know we haven't got um, much time, but do Well, it. it's, it's an annual of stories, an unofficial annual of stories based on the Peter Cushing Doctor, who's the perfect Doctor to have an annual of slightly mad Doctor Who stories based on him. And it's not very expensive. It's all written by fans. It's an unofficial, unlicensed and unprofit making thing. Just check out Doctor Who. Fanual. Spelt like annual with an F on the front if you're at all interested. Uh, the story that came fourth in our rundown of the top ten Matt Smith stories was The Doctor's Wife. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. And so on to Series 7. <laughs> yeah, everyone knows I love it. I go on about it all the time. But anyway, yes, that's all that needs to be said. Well, it's not as consistent as Series 6, but it's more consistent to my man than Series 5. And, okay, it's very much a tale of two halves. It's a bit like two shorter series, really. But I think... I think at this point, Stephen Moffat's so on top of his Doctor Who Mm. that I'm not going to say he um, drops the ball, because I don't think he drops the ball, but I think he's so on top of it that I don't think it has the originality, the freshness, the uniqueness, the vivacity that his earlier Doctor Who has. I think there's something about it that doesn't feel like Moffat by numbers, but feels like slightly like they're coasting perhaps shall we say i felt one thing that was refreshing was the whole idea on 7a of having the individual 
mini movies. Mm. And I felt that was a, a great response to people like me who were a bit curmudgeonly when it came to the sort of massive arcs that were going on. Well, there was and absolutely I've... no arc in those five episodes whatsoever, was exactly, there? Exactly, exactly. And I felt that was a refreshing change up. It was a ride, I have to say. Mm. It was a real ride and... Um, I think his theory and his idea about doing these individual individual movie like episodes really worked, and it and it, it was just great fun. And then in the second half, apart from the first and last episode, and a few mentions of Clara in between, you almost had the same thing again, but it was just a little bit more subdued and didn't work quite as well. I think. What's that? The the single mm. episodes or the. Yeah, the thing, the mm. the sort of movie idea, I guess, in the second half of series seven, the Clara episodes. Yeah, it didn't things feel like, like mo- movies to me. The, the first no. half definitely did. Well, I mean, they did to me. They just felt like a different kind of movie. Okay. Did you things did, like maybe it's just me? I felt the tone had shifted in yeah. the second part, so it did feel like a different series. It didn't feel like mm. seven B. It just felt like in the first half, half of the series. In the first half of the series. They felt to me like A-list movies. Mm. Dinosaurs on a spaceship felt like a blockbuster Hollywood sci-fi. Town Called Mercy felt like a blockbuster Hollywood western. Power of Three felt like a blockbuster Hollywood (laughs) rom-com, as it were. Uh, Do you know what I'm saying? They all felt like I know where you're going with this as well. They all felt like blockbuster Hollywood movies, (laughs) and in the second half, (laughs) they all feel like B B B movies. It does. You know, you've got Cold War, which is yeah, yeah, it's your submarine film, and Rings of Akatan is like you know a B movie sci-fi flick. Even Hyde, Hyde is very much a Scooby Doo thing. Journey to Senator is like the Poseidon Adventure. Crimson Horror's got the the Victorian horror B movie thing. Yeah, you're right. They are a bit like that. I never really thought it's about like it. It's <laughs> like Series 7 Part A, <laughs> A movies. Series 7 Part B, B movies. Yeah, apart from there Na- you go. Nightmare and Silver really is just a B movie. <laughs> no, well, Nightmare and Silver is a C movie. <laughs> i let you choose what C stands for. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> but I mean, overall, I th- it did it dipped more than Series 6 did. And you know, I, I think there's a couple of episodes in series five that I think are real dips as well. So less balanced in that sense. And are we including the Doctor, the Widow, and the Wardrobe in series seven? Are we including that? No. Why would we? Thank God for that. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, no. I, that's series seven A and B are, are, are two series that I really, really enjoy. Probably more so than the other two, and I can't even put. I don't even know why. <laughs> um, it's bizarre. I mean, we did watch Dinos on a Spaceship, Mercy, Power Three, uh, with you for the first time, reviewing the episodes. They were quite special for us, I think, on the podcast. So yeah. I, I hold something there that's quite special. But at the same mm. time, Town Called Mercy was a grower. You know, I, I really like that episode now. Whereas before, I found it okay. And Dinos is still amazing. I just love it. Power of Three is up there as one of my favourites now. The more I watch that, the better it gets. And even the the Rings of Akatan, which everybody thought was a pile of pup, um, I uh, still no. I think you'll find me and Jr. defended it on. Oh the yeah, you did. You did. You did. Sorry, yeah. uh, but I actually really loved the first twenty minutes. I know it, it felt a little bit sugary near the end, and it's, it kind of lost its way. But the first twenty minutes was just gorgeous. I I loved it. And even well, Cold War, uh... which is quite a weak kind of 
episode in its way. It was just a bit of fun and visually very exciting. So, yeah, I mean, all of them I'm looking at now. Hyde is incredible as well. Yeah. Going back to the movie analogy, again, okay, if you want to talk about Doctor the Widow and the Wardrobe, that does feel like a blockbuster children's movie, whereas The Ring of Akaten does... The Rings of Akaten does feel like a sort of more cheapo children's movie. Yeah, Flash Gordon. It's a bit like... Well, no, 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 no. Flash Gordon's not a children's movie. I'm <laughs> talking a specifically aimed at children movie. No, I know what you mean. You know, Rings of Akaten and Doctor Widow and a Wardrobe do feel, of all of Doctor Who of recent years, like the ones that are most specifically aimed at the kids. Everybody's yeah, gone really, quiet. <laughs> I can't really argue on that. I mean. No, no, we're all agreeing, I think, yeah. Um, I'm still there okay. on Cold War, though, so I still dislike Cold War for the for the same reasons I disliked it when mm. I watched it. I, I think that was twice, our moment, but... wasn't it, in the podcast review where we all, I think we'd all just, I don't know, we got out of bed the wrong side or where we were all just being overly analytical, but it made for quite depressing listening listening back to the episode we were all just so fed up and yeah that was I but do... a lot of people really like that episode so well, it just goes to show that after reviewing yeah. it i've watched it four times now <laughs> um mm-hmm. and two times watching it i had this i thought oh, i don't want to watch this again i, I don't think this is particularly good uh, the third time in i kind of watched it over my shoulder while something else was going on somebody else was watching it. i was kind of like oh yeah and then the fourth time, for some reason, I just thought, do you know what, I'm I'm looking at this too much as a fan. It's just a bit of a mm. laugh. I don't yeah. like the fact that it came out of his suit. That was ridiculous. That's the first that's the only thing I completely shoot down in flames. Never show the Ice Warrior again. Have please. you got the uh, naked Ice Warrior action figure, <laughs> Lee? Uh no, I haven't. It, it, oh, you know I, what? I, I wouldn't go near it with the barge ball. But the whole I feeling can of imagine, it is <laughs> I can imagine that that'll be like the Dalek midsection rotating in um the series one episode, Dalek. I love yeah, that as well. It'll be something we'll never see again. Yeah. I bet, yeah. yeah. The inside of this ice warrior will be something we'll never see again. Talking of things we'll never see again, definite Pardon lack me. of uh, what a pig paradigm Daleks in the uh, time of the Doctor. Oh yeah, they've definitely dis- just saying <laughs> they've disappeared, haven't they? With their own bumps. Yeah, fair enough. That's fair enough. Um, can I also say we they've we, disappeared into Amy's crack? We we got the Paternoster Club, didn't we? The little gang uh, that that kind of became a lot more prevalent. Um, what mm. do you what did you guys think about having this little gang that the Doctor can go back to now and again? I like it. It makes I for do. a more consistent universe. Mm. And it's I kind love. Of, I, sorry. Uh, well, I was just going to say I love the fact that Stephen Moffat's written this story that's four years long and made it a consistent universe in which to have this consistency of storytelling. Mm. Mm. I like the fact that he's got this sort of oddball family in the Russell T Davis years. You'd have you know, Jackie and the the Tyler family, and you'd have Martha's family. And he's got his own little family of sort of oddball characters that he comes back to. And I really like that. The thing that amuses me is that during the Russell T. Davis years, all the Doctor Who fans were moaning like hell about Mm. the soapy element. Why do you have to keep going back to Earth? Why do you keep having to have the companion's family? So then Stephen Moffat ditches the idea of the companion having much of a family but instead makes a more consistent universe by giving you these characters that the Doctor does meet from time to time, mm. as you would assume he would. Yeah. Because let's face it, when you're that age, you're not going to always avoid meeting people. You are going to have people you like and you want to go back and see. 
and the fans moan about that as well. It's like, <laughs> you know, what? Where's the compromise? What do you want to see? <laughs> for the record, you can't please all the people all the time, can you? For the record, no. for the record, I love the soapy elements. Anyway, I thought they worked brilliantly. Um, the other th- interesting thing that Moffat, d- Moffat does is that he takes, uh, you know, well-known enemies, as this is blindly obvious what I'm going to say, and then turns them into mates of the Doctor. So you've got the um, Sontar and Strax, who is. I personally think it's fantastic. I know Simon has taken time to warm up to that. Uh, Ma- Madam, you know, Vastra is a Silurian. Handles is a Cyberman. Oh, it, Handles. It just, it, I love Handles. Exactly. Handles is great. You're right about the title of the last step, though. Uh, it should have been called Mark. Love Handles. Time of the Doctor review. <laughs> He'd forgotten. Suddenly. <laughs> He'd lo- oh, forgotten. Love Handles. It's such a great. It should have been the title of the last podcast. It's brilliant. That was one of the highlights of Time of the Doctor. <laughs> but again, I thought where you were going that, Lee, was yeah. again, that makes that makes those species more realistic and less realistic. Completely. Because it shows that they have individuals. And even in a clone, people say, oh, a clone race wouldn't have individuals. Yeah, of course it would. Because the clone is only the basics of the DNA. It's like the nature versus nurture thing, isn't it? You go back to the Pertwee years and you'd have factions of Silurians and factions of you know other creatures who yeah, have... Ice sort warriors. Of... Yeah. yeah. Is, um, there's uh, a very interesting, I'm sure we've all read it, a very interesting interview with Stephen Moffat in the latest Dot Two magazine. Um, mm. And he makes the point about this tangible universe to launch Peter Capaldi into. He's absolutely right. I mean, th- there was a lot of things in place in the RTD years, but I think now there, there, there really is. There's, there's real guts to the universe that the Doctor's flying around in now. Um, I have a feeling as well, and I'm not entirely sure. I haven't read this too, actually. So it, this could be not just something I have a feeling about, but because I've read it. But I also have a feeling that he said, or that somebody had said that he'd said that the reason he wants to start Peter Capaldi off in this tangible universe is to demonstrate that he's a different man and that he doesn't want to exist in this tangible universe. And they'll be in that first episode and then all those elements will get left behind. So that probably will be the last time we see people like Strax and Vastra. Possibly, if that's true. And I can see that working because if Stephen Moffat wants to move Doctor Who somewhere else... What do you do? Like in the 11th hour, you start off with a safety net episode. But by using that safety net episode to demonstrate that you're going to do something different, it allows you the freedom to therefore go off afterwards and be that different thing. Definitely. It'd be interesting to see whether we get to see uh, Clara's family again, because that's the first real time we've seen her family and her grandma especially it was, it was lovely the wonga woman wonga.com <laughs> uh, but uh yeah no it'd be great if she walked in and there was peter capaldi and uh you know the older lady was like mm. and uh <laughs> i don't know there's just it's going to be so interesting seeing the dynamics of, of capaldi in this universe that's been created and like you say if he if he kicks it out the window decides do you know what i don't want to do this anymore i want to go somewhere else then good because that's what tom baker kind of did with his uh his uh, his tenure and it, sh- it should happen. It's got to, you can't just hang around in the same place all the time. Tone or or character or you know um, the the same vista for donkey's years just gets boring. So it's going to have to change. It will change. Maybe he'll just kill off the Paternoster gang in the next episode. Um, <laughs> the story that was voted third best of the Matt Smith era in our little poll was the Day of the Doctor. 
Can't argue with that. I can. <laughs> Come on, then, Lee. Why wasn't it first? Is that what you're saying? Is that what you mean? Uh, no, no. I, I no, it's fine. Number three's fine. I understand why he's going for it. I, I haven't really got. I can't really back my argument <clears> that <throat> much, apart from the fact that I personally didn't think it was that strong an episode. But then again. You know, I watched it half cut at a wedding, and I haven't been back to it since. So I can't really, I've got anything to say. Currently, you really need to find an hour up. or so to put aside and just watch it because it's so good. Okay, How can I... you have watched Cold War five <laughs> yeah. times? Four, four and the times. day of the. I thought you said you'd seen it five times. Uh, four, though. I think. I, I think. thought you said four times since. But oh, okay, yeah, you've no, seen Cold War four times, <laughs> and the day of the Doctor, <laughs> the anniversary <laughs> special. You've not watched again since. I think I'm a bit scared to watch it in case I really don't like it. So that maybe no, I will. Of no, Lee, I'll go and I, watch it. <laughs> I don't think you'll find you don't like it, mate. No, I did not not like it anyway. I really did enjoy it. I just didn't think it was um, really up there. I, I don't know why. I, it felt a bit patchy in places and things. I think also I was getting a little bit. Not annoyed, but I, I felt that so much was being thrown at us very quickly, and it was changing the myth of the Doctor in almost one episode so hugely. I thought, no, this isn't fair. You should be stretching this out. There's so much here that you could, you could let it extend a little bit longer, even, and uh, you know the, the time war and all this. But no, it's okay. it's fine. I understand why it's so high. Uh, but I'd like to hear what um, Mark's got to say and other people. I thought he did, you know, all those massive changes to the the sort of history of the show. I thought he handled it really deftly. I thought, you know, I was absolutely blown away by how he'd managed to, you know, answer some of those sort of problems that go back to the whole idea of the time war. I thought he did a great job of that. I love John Hurt. I think he's fantastic in that episode. Um, the um, relationship between... Matt Smith's Doctor and David Tennant's Doctor is brilliant. And I also really liked the way they brought back Rose because when... Well, it's not Rose, obviously, but Billy Piper. Um, when they announced that she was going to be in it, I did have a slight moment of thinking, oh, God, no. I thought it was going to be you know, revisiting old stuff, but I really liked the way that they brought her back. Do you know something else as well, which is slightly off at a tangent, but <clears throat> I'm going to say it anyway. Hmm. And this is to do with the time of the Doctor, but it kind of relates to all those things because it's a case of Moffat giving fans something that they've hankered after or that they've talked about or that they've not understood and needed an explanation for. But, you know, the number of times over the past few years I've read people say, oh, this new regeneration effect where there's all this energy going off everywhere what happens to all that energy why isn't it destructive why doesn't the TARDIS blow up etc etc and of course in tenants we see a massive explosion of energy and the TARDIS does mm -hmm. blow up but you have to take it that in general you know the TARDIS is built to contain that energy and sort of earth it so what happens when the Doctor regenerates outside the TARDIS? Well, finally we find out that the regeneration energy, and of course there's a lot more regeneration energy, because he's not regenerating from one body into the next, he's regenerating from one cycle into another, destroys the Dalek ship. And it's almost like Moffat has said, well, there you go, that's what you wanted, there you are. And fans turned around and said, Naff off. 
I didn't. I thought that's absolutely brilliant. I love that. And I wanted to see it outside. I wanted to see what happened. And it, 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 it did everything that I wanted it to do, basically. It was absolutely fantastic. The, um, the thing that I wanted to... Uh, quickly say also is uh, about the TARDIS uh, uh, you know I don't know whether you had that slated in to talk about later but the TARDIS does change of course between the two seasons five six and then obviously seven and um, I personally think it's for the better I absolutely love yeah. this TARDIS not because I've actually been in the studio guys and walked around it and touched the knobs and stuff where John Hurt stood and uh, everybody else, of course. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, not that. But the fact is that you can concentrate on the actors. The original TARDIS uh, with Matt Smith's TARDIS was, was beautiful and fun, but so damn messy that every time he did anything subtle, I was looking at the things dangling next to him and behind him. Whereas in this one, whenever he does a, you have a close-up or you have a chat with Clara or whatever, you're mm. concentrating on the actors, and it's a design. It's a design brilliance because it means. I it, love it. I yeah, it's a minimalist amazing. thing. Is it's why the original TARDIS seemed to work for me, the white one in the old series, because it was quite minimal, and you're concentrating on the actors talking. Okay, after I said the Doctor's wife, uh, we were supposed to get to another email. No, the day of the Doctor. Sorry, we were supposed to get to another email, and that was another five minutes ago. So here's that email. <clears throat> From Weird Bean. Hi, Blue Boxers. Congratulations, first of all, to Mark on becoming a daddy. Thank you, Weird Bean. And second of all, Happy New Year to you all. Thank you very much. Happy New Year. He says, I listened to your last two podcasts yesterday. Both were great, by the way. Well done on the Lone podcast, JR. I'll hey, I've got a bone to, to pick with you as well. I'll come you back to it. Going, oh, well, no one wants to do it with me. I was kind of in the hospital with Amy at that point. I wasn't talking about you, Mark. I was talking about these two numpties. (laughs) Listening to Podcast 88 prompted me to do something I'd been promising myself ever since Christmas Day. I finally rewatched The Time of the Doctor. I have to confess that on my first viewing, I was left feeling dissatisfied. Second viewing, it gave me everything I wanted. All the answers I'd craved to have for so very long. And still how, and still somehow left me feeling a bit meh as it seems to have left many people feeling. Though I did enjoy it, it just didn't quite satisfy me. But on a second viewing, well, it's a beautiful Christmas fairy tale. It's clever, as all the Grand Moff's tenure has been, and moving and subtle. There was no meh from me this time. I've thought about this long and hard, and I've concluded my initial reaction was because it didn't deliver everything quite as I might have expected. But it absolutely did deliver. I suspect that the more times you watch, the more there will be to appreciate. I've made that point before, haven't I? When you watch mm-hmm. something the first time, you're watching to see if your expectations are met. Yeah. When you watch something the second time, you no longer have expectations, so there's nothing to meet. Anyway, <clears throat> Weird Bean says, Which I think, combined with the tying together of all those loose ends, is why some people have said it's complicated. But that just makes it a rewarding repeat watcher. If it's turning into a love or hate it episode, I may have just decided to love it. Enough tosh from me. Keep up the good work, guys. Weird Bean. Thank you, Weird Bean. I'm glad you. he enjoyed my podcast on my own. That was the most <laughs> terrifying thing I've ever done. Very quickly, while we're still on the subject of time, the Doctor. Um, I'll Somebody put up a, a photo on I think it was Google Plus and um, it's um, a still from the five doctors where John Pertwee is saying to the master, where well, he's got the seal of Russell on his hand, he said I'll promise to give it back to you straight away 
And then it's got another picture of Matt Smith still holding it thousands of years later. That was brilliant. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Um, can I just say, well, uh, I didn't manage to get a word in. Um, I, I think I've said it on a previous podcast, but I still want to know what happens now if the Doctor regenerates lying down. Does he fire off across the room? <laughs> well, unless he holds his hands up and points them towards the ceiling. <laughs> that he'd, yeah. well, it might be like doing snow angels but with regeneration energy yeah this is it yeah. Um, I, uh, I'm i not going to say what or why or who but next week's podcast will address these issues okay uh, because you guys I think you already know that next week I've got a couple of guests lined up as well don't you what oh, okay. mm. well this has been mm. on the cards for several months I think and next week, finally, we're getting together and doing it, Ooh. and we will be addressing. Well, perhaps not specifically this. So now that now that you've brought it up, I should try and make sure we do. But this kind of thing. Okay. Okay. So there's a little teaser for next week. Look, <clears throat> the second in our Matt Smith top ten. Since as as you keep taking me off at tangents or going off at tangents, the second in our Matt Smith top ten is. And this is not really a surprise at all, given how much everybody seems to love it. The 11th hour. Mm -hmm. <gasps> so what could possibly be our number one, eh? Keep listening. We'll get there in the end. <laughs> at least I think we will. Oh, incidentally, Skip while we're the on end. it, the, the five stories that <laughs> came just outside the top ten were Hyde, The mm -hmm. Wedding of River Song, The Impossible Astronaut, The Crimson Horror, and The Angels Take Manhattan. Hmm. Wasn't so keen on that one, I have to say. Three of my top ten in the in those five. Oh, really? Great stories all, though, I think, mm. really. Yeah. I mean, I even look on things like The Angels Take Manhattan that I didn't especially like the first time around, and I just think, yeah, but they're so head and shoulders above almost anything else you could see anywhere else on television or anywhere. Oh, yeah. Even Doctor Who that I don't like that much is still way better than pretty much any other program yeah and i just and I, and I think you know in maybe 20 or 30 years i can see something like the angels take manhattan being thought of in the same way as we think of something like maybe terror of the zygons now because terror of the zygons isn't an especially good story it just works something about it that works and lives well in the memory. And I have a feeling that something like The Angels Take Manhattan, with all that really spooky stuff in the sort of motel and that whole sort of, uh, you know, film noir type feel, I can just see that sitting well and living well and surviving well. Do you know what I mean? I keep saying, do you know what I mean a lot? Look, guys, <laughs> it's our last segment. And really, this is we've talked enough about the specials already. We don't need to do a segment on the two specials, but... Mm -hmm. A summing up bit, Matt Smith's era, the four-year story then that I've talked about several times in this episode. On the whole, do you feel the four-year story, and it was a four-year story, and I think Stephen Moffat even said at the start that he was planning to do that. Do you feel it worked? Uh, Absolutely. At the beginning, or for the four years, it was yes and no. It was irritating a lot of the time, and it was partly... Is he? Does he know what he's doing? What the hell's going on? Why would he do this? What's this trends of law business all about? And why is it suddenly okay now and flipping out? It's you when know? you can go back and look at it in context. And though, the, isn't it? Yeah, and then you get to the very end of Time of the Doctor, 
very end, uh, with everything explained and it all wrapped up in a nice little bow on top of a nice Christmas parcel, and you think, flipping heck, that was amazing. <laughs> Those four years were incredible, actually, and you've got to go back and start watching it all again because so much stuff suddenly starts making sense. Um, so I think at the, like- at the time it was it's difficult, and also for, to the inverted commas, the casual viewer, very difficult probably to convince them that it was, uh, you know... Uh, easy to digest because it wasn't a lot of people found it very complicated but for the person who followed it and was loyal they're rewarded definitely by Stephen Moffat especially you know in the time of the daughter that's so I think yes it did work in the end but I've got to say I think listening back on the the podcast you probably find me going god no what what, I don't get this um, but now I do, and well, you're still saying that about the day of the doctor. <laughs> well, <coughs> yeah, I suppose there are little things, but that's okay. That's all part of the fun now, so we can go back and piece together the jigsaw puzzles because it's all there. It's all mm. there. It's got to be all there. He hasn't missed anything, has he? <laughs> um, I think my overwhelming feeling is that right the way through, whether there have been stories that haven't been quite as good as some of the others, Matt Smith has knocked it out of the park every single week. Um, and he came into it not really knowing very much about um, the history of the show, and I think he's now become a bit of a fan himself, and I think he leaves the programme in a, a stronger position than when he took it over, and I can't think you can ask for any more than that. No, and, that, and that's, a, that's a big ask anyway. Cause it Particularly was, following David Tennant. Absolutely, you know? yeah. I mean, I'm in disbelief. I look down these the list of episodes, and I just think... Yeah, uh, this is in my head, all right, before anyone shouts me down says, no, it's not classic, it's not classic. <laughs> but I look at each one, and each one is kind of a classic. I've got affection for every story, mm. and each one is so individual that I don't I don't think... I, I, it's almost like looking back at a Pertwee uh, series. Oh, now, come on. No, on a, well, no, okay, okay, yeah, fair <laughs> dues, Mark. There's no long game. No, no. But I'd, I'd look back at um, what series was it? Was it series 10 with Terror of the Ortons? No, what was that? Season 8. Season eight. 8. Where you look at each of those and each one's become like a classic and they're all like, they've all got like little characteristics and they're all little personalities in their own. And um, I feel the same with the whole of the, of the Matt Smith era that I look at each one and think, oh yeah, it's that one. Oh yeah, it's that one. Um, and much as I loved the Russell T Davies years, there were some very samey stories Absolutely. In there. No, I was going to say that make the same point. It's, it just doesn't have the. There's a lot of colour, but there isn't a lot of flavour necessarily. And there's peaks and troughs, and there's there's times when you feel like they're kind of treading water, just doing another Doctor Who story. Um, whereas the, it doesn't ever feel like he's tre- they're treading water with the Matt Smith era. It really doesn't. And I, going back to the point I made about the Angels Take Manhattan just now, I have a feeling that once this is all done and dusted and Stephen Moffat's long gone and we're another five Doctors down the line and in 20 years or 15 years or 30 years or whatever it is, people are going to look back on the Matt Smith era and just think of it as legendary Doctor Who. Mm-hmm. I just think... Yeah, I think you're right. I think the way Stephen Moffat has changed the show is, and yes, probably my biggest criticism of it in a way, and this is not a criticism, is that Stephen Moffat's done a very inward-looking Doctor Who where the Doctor and the companions become central to the drama. But I think Doctor Who's a big enough series to survive that. It's always been about the Doctor and his companions looking outwards. And just for once, it's about the show looking inwards at the Doctor and the Companion. It is. And 
But that is what most television and what most stories do. So I don't think it's a problem for Doctor Who to do that for a while. And, you know, presumably after Moffat, or maybe even now with Moffat and after Smith, it will go back to being what it was before, when it will be an outward-looking show again. So I don't see that as a problem, but that would perhaps be the biggest difference. I think think that's a bigger difference than the fact that there's been this four-year story arc. I think the biggest difference has been that it's been so much more inward-looking than it has outward-looking. But I think also the fact that it's been the anniversary kind of justifies that as well. And the fact that Stephen Moffat's been telling this long story justifies that because there'd be no other way to tell a story that long than by having it being inward-looking because otherwise the story wouldn't have enough impact to keep you strung along for the four years. I I also... Keep you involved. Yeah. Uh, I also feel that, you know, it's been said that Doctor Who reflects life as it is as as culture and uh, the media does um and it may well be that, that that it does reflect where we are i mean it survived through the recession it's re- survived through you know a real period of reflection for a lot of people i think a lot of people have um been through, through some really hard times and this has gone through tell you that. what the doctor he's going to be gutted about that bedroom tax isn't he yeah <laughs> <laughs> Jettison. Um, I think you're talking utter bollocks now because there's been none of that in the program at all, Simon. No, none of that. What do you mean? I don't know. No, I mean when when I say that, you're saying about a very inward looking, and I think in general, um, if you think about the old era, classic era as a Doctor Who, it was very, it was just, it was, it was stories. It was where just where stuff happened, stuff happened, and now stuff happens. What, but what, what's more important is how people feel. And it's how they think, and it's as you say, it's all about um, reflection, and it's all about uh, studying the human. You know, maybe I'm getting bullshit here, but uh, you know, that's how I feel. I think about these things too much. No, I know. I, I think I know where you're getting at. I do. Um, yeah, you're right. Um, but I'm going to talk about something completely different. <laughs> That's got no emotion attached whatsoever. Uh, between the twelfth and the thirteenth regenerations, apparently the Valiard appeared, didn't he? He got he was splintered off. Did we did we get to see a bit of his face in the regeneration? Because if not, that was he missed a trick there. He could have put shoved a bit of that in there. But anyway, um, moving quickly on. Are we? Ta- uh, no, I think you'll find <laughs> Lee that that should have happened in the tenant into Smith regeneration. That's what I mean. No, we don't, because that would have to. They would have to have known what was going to happen in the day of the Doctor ahead of time. Exactly. Once again, this is something that will be addressed next week. I'm sure it will. Listen, um, there's one thing I wanted to say about Matt Smith, because um, I know you, we're kind of wrapping up a bit here. Feels like. Well, I'm desperately trying to. This is already our longest I episode. I just have to say something about Matt because I, I've got a massive appreciation for comedy. Um, and how to deliver it. It's a very, very hard thing to do. And he's, I think, one of the best physical comedy actors, underrated actually, uh, of all time. I mean, I would hold him up there with people like Chaplin, Laurel and Hardy, Harold Lloyd, and probably Keaton too, if he could do half of the stuff that he could do. His timing is, you know, the comic timing is really hard, and he is actually a genius at it. And there, there, it's not just the big stuff. There's a lovely little tiny... Um, uh, thing where he's sitting on a, a swing. It's like a prequel or something. I think it's to the Bells of St. John, probably. And he's sitting on a swing and a little girl sits next to him and he just has this little chat with her. 
and you know he's got this brilliant beautiful kind of mix of uh being like a little kid who's lost his bag of sweets you know he's lost clara and he's a bit sad and clocking his feet together on the swing and then he laughs and it's like a dad who's surprised how wise a kid can be because she comes out with some ideas that he, he, he laughs at and it's natural his performance is very natural but the way he moves is childlike but wise and you know this old young doctor thing all coming out in his physical movement and his facial expressions best acting I've seen in Donkey's years and I think he's uh, I don't know he's just suddenly become possibly up there almost my favourite doctor next to Tom Baker amazing amazing to turn it around from uh, four years ago when I thought this guy was okay you know a bit mental but alright to being like what that this guy's fantastic amazing thank you Matt and goodbye <laughs> And seeing as my alarm's just gone off to get up for work tomorrow morning, I think that's a beautiful <laughs> spot to leave it. Um, well, I was JR. I was Lee. I was Mark. And I was Simon. And we'll speak again very, very soon. And the reason we'll speak again very, very soon is because I've had a little funny there, guys. I didn't say what the number one story was, so we'll stick this on as an Easter egg after the music. <laughs> Love it. And the reason I did that was so we can talk about the music because, of course, nobody entered our competition to write our theme arrangement. What? So the new what music so the new music that we've had on for the last three episodes has been by Simon. Thank you, Simon. Yeah, well done. It's been good. Who's stepped in at the last minute and what do you mean it's been good? You've not heard it? No, I haven't, but I'm sure it's good. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, look, I do have to get up in about fifteen minutes for work tomorrow. So the number one story, would you like to guess what it was? Do any of you know what it was? Curse of the black spot. Don't you dare. <laughs> okay, do you want to all guess what it was? The story that we and our listeners voted the number one Matt Smith story? Journey? No. Ooh, uh, name of the Doctor. Asylum. Her journey came 30th. What? Blamey. Asylum came 27th. Name of the what was the other one you said? Name of the Doctor. Uh, name of the Doctor came 20th. <laughs> Crimson Horror. No? <laughs> no, Crimson Horror came 14th. It's this is all on the Easter egg, so this is all going out. It's the girl who waited. Oh, oh yeah, yes, yeah, excellent. Why not? I'm really pleased about that. I am as well. And in and in the end, that won by a considerable bit as well. I think I got. So a... that was easily the voted the best story. Did that get Hugo nominated as well as a story? I think it did. Uh, not entirely sure. No. I think uh, I can't remember. That was the doctor's wife, yeah. So yeah, maybe it was doctor's wife then. Oh, mm. I, 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 oh, um, yes. Why not? That's a beautiful story, perfectly paced, wonderfully told, lovely, almost like a short story from somebody like I don't know Philip K. Dick or Asimov or something like that. Really lovely, simple idea that just span off into a different direction. Uh, 
Lee, you're absolutely determined to dominate the end of this podcast with some long speeches. No, I'm not. I can't help myself. I just love it so much. Right, I'll shut up now. (laughs) Yeah, let's... uh, (laughs) Well, you guys will reconvene in two weeks. And um, I have a hankering to do the Trial of a Time Lord. How do you feel about that? Oh, yeah. Why not? Yeah, okay, we're us. We're still on the record. Two weeks' time, we'll do the trial of a time lord, and until then, speak again soon. And that really is the end of the episode. And actually, it turns out that's not quite it, because Mark isn't the only one who became a father just recently. I've kind of become a father too, in a way, although not in the same way as Mark has. Uh, The special guests we had on last week's podcast, uh, Alno, Doc Hume, and the Reverend Captain Hollow Porro, so enjoyed uh, recording last week's podcast that they have, in fact, gone off and come up with a new podcast of their own. It's called the Diddly Dumb Podcast, and the theme for it was the piece of music you heard just now, and I think the first episode will be available as this podcast goes out. If not, it will be very soon thereafter. And you can probably find it on iTunes under Doctor Who The Diddly Dumb Podcast, and if not, you can find it at diddlydumbpodcast at wordpress.com. Uh, they've also got a Twitter feed, diddlydumbpodcast, or I think, no, actually just diddlydumb on Twitter. Uh, so well worth seeking out those three guys if you enjoyed last week's podcast. So there you go. I feel like a proud father. <laughs>